Zach Wilson impresses at OTAs. The ball didn't hit the floor, folks. A huge departure from the last two years. Plus, we have Tyler Greenewalt of Jetswire USA Today. Sable Radio back again on the night that OTAs was available to the media, which means we got our first glimpse at Zach Wilson in seven-on-sevens, in teams, in situations that would force him to make decisions, force him to fit the ball, force him to place the ball, force him to use that quick release of his, force him to show us whether or not he's up to the first task, the first challenge, which is plowing through and playing well in practice. Yes, it's just OTAs, but it's unlike rookie minicamp where they're just playing against air and there's not really much going on. I think there was some seven-on-sevens at rookie minicamp for Zach Wilson, but media wasn't there and it's just not the same. Here, although a couple guys were noticeably absent, we'll start there. Marcus May, obviously, with the contract. Will it be an issue in August? I don't think so. That's my hunch. But obviously he's not going to be there for voluntary OTAs. Quinnen Williams with the injury, not there. Makai Becton, not there. Carl Lawson, not there. Ashton Davis, not there. And I'm not sure exactly sure why he wasn't there today. Remember, this is only one day. They've been at, they've been at it for a while here. So taking one day and trying to examine everything with one day is not the best look. But hey, we got to talk about what we saw from this quarterback. Because, folks, I know it's just OTAs and fans will roll their eyes. Not all of them, but many of them will roll their eyes at what I'm about to say. Don't, though, because when it's noticeably this different, it needs to be called out. It needs to be said. It needs to be announced to everybody. What I saw from Zach Wilson Thursday in Florham Park, at the facility, at OTAs, against the first team defense. Mosley was on the field. Yep, May wasn't there. Quinnen wasn't there. But pretty much everyone else was. What I saw from that kid is legit. Everything he does is quick. We, we've been discussing it ad nauseum. Blew it, Nania me. Everything he does is quick. His release is special. And if you have a quick release in the NFL, you could do so much damage. You're ahead of the game. There's so many things you could do that a guy with a slower release can't do. This game is a three-step drop game today. It's a passing league, but it's a processing league. You process pre-snap, you process post-snap, You make quick decisions. That's what this league is. Do you want to take chunks downfield at times? Of course. Do you want to run the ball at times? Sure. But this is a processing matchup. Get the ball three-step and out league. And with his quick release, that release is just, it's an, I don't, I think it's underrated. I, I think it's absolutely underrated. It's not being discussed enough. And I think over the next two years in the NFL, it's going to become much more of a Bigger topic. I'm so much more impressed by his release in person than I was on film. And I was still impressed on film. He has quick feet, 
quick hands, quick release, quick processing. The ball placement was flawless. Seven on seven and in teams. And what's interesting is this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, I'm not here telling you this is the next Johnny Unitas. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the guy's legit. That's what I'm saying. He's a legit quarterback. Seven on sevens. You talk to other beat reporters, other media guys, the great quarterbacks, the ball never hits the ground in seven on sevens, nor should it, especially in today's league. You know, you practice the way you play. So the way these guys practice in, or the way the DBs practice, they're not physical. They're not, they're not committing penalties. You know, you got officials at these, a lot of these practices to make sure that doesn't happen. The ball shouldn't hit the ground. Even in Montana's era, the ball shouldn't hit the ground. Seven on seven. There's no pass rush. The ball should never hit the ground. With Darnold under Gase, the last two years, the ball always hit the ground. Always. Even Darnold's first year with Bulls. It was ugly. It was tough sledding. You know, were there good days here and there? Of course. But routinely, it was ugly. It just wasn't good. Teams as well. Team Zach Wilson was tremendous. He started off hitting, who was it, Keelan Cole, I think, over the middle. And then he hit Berrios on a slant. Can't really discuss the formations, personnel, certain plays, all that stuff. And for obvious reasons, the organization, all NFL organizations don't want that info released. So players, you know, kind of what happened, trying to give a picture on the play without giving any information away is the way it has to go. Uh, Seven on seven. Well, we'll start from the beginning. Teams. The first play in teams, Tevin Coleman started at back, busted through the line for a good chunk, 10, 15 yards. Where the tackle would have happened, I'm not sure. But right up the gut, in between the tackles. Couldn't tell exactly what gap it was, and I actually missed the actual... Uh, run call I think it was an inside zone but I'm not sure but the offense had the defense's number all game all day all day offense dominated the defense especially first team with Zach Wilson second play I'm not going to tell you how he was involved but Elijah Moore was involved right from the get-go on the second play Use your noggin. Why do they need Elijah Moore? Yes, he could do a lot of things, but what's he going to fill immediately? They needed this guy to threaten the edge. Crowder, as good as he is in the slot, who wasn't there today, obviously either, he's not that jet motion, threaten the edge type guy. Like Adebo Samuel is. Elijah Moore is. And the kid is going to be a stud in the NFL. He's going to be a flat out stud. So they get him involved right away in the second play. Play doesn't really work, but just just the point that they got him involved. They called his number. Third play is when it was the first pass, and that's when Zach Wilson hit Keelan Cole on some sort of an in-cut, in-stride, ball placement right there, 
right near his neck, right near his chin. It was just a beautiful play. Seven on seven. They went from teams to seven on seven, teams seven on seven, obviously positionals before that too, uh, stretching obviously to kick off the day. But seven on seven, more good Zach Wilson stuff. He hits Braxton Berrios on a three-step, some sort of in-cut in which Berrios has plenty of room to run. So he picks up a lot of yak. And again, more Elijah Moore. He's involved. Wilson also hits someone down the sideline. I forgot who it was. He was either Malone or Keelan Cole again, but just put a beautiful pass right on the outside shoulder down the sideline into single coverage. No two deep safeties. He was either single high or zero, but I think it was single high. Cover one. And with confidence, man coverage, outside shoulder, just a just a silly throw, silly placement. Like I right here, if you're on YouTube, you're what you're seeing these tweets. Everything about Zach Wilson is quick. He processes everything quick. It's night and day compared to the previous quarterback. And yes, roll your eyes. It's just OTAs. But when you see a player compared to another player and you see that player live, even if it's practice, you know. And with Zach Wilson, it feels that way. It looks that way. Nine hours ago, I tweeted this. The ball is never hitting the ground in seven-on-sevens. I think it hit the ground twice out of a lot of plays in seven-on-seven. On one play, his number two, the number two weapon to his right was going to the flat, and his number one weapon to his right was doing a slant, so it was a slant-flat combo. He looked to the flat the entire time and nearly threw a no-look slant. To that right side. So looking to the right, to the flat, coming back against the grain of his body to the slant, covered very well. Fell incomplete, but the placement was just absurd. Low, inside, out of the danger, and the the ball actually popped up a little bit, and they almost had a chance to pick it off. Didn't happen, but the placement was absurd. Remember, it's about the process, not the results. If they would have picked that ball off, LaFleur is still patting Wilson on the back there because he placed it in the perfect spot. And that's what you need. That's what you want to see. And for a kid who's coming from BYU, coming from college, he should not be doing this on day one. I'm sorry. He should not be doing this. I know guys are missing, but this was too good. So, you know, other things, other call-outs, Lawrence Cager got hurt. I don't think anyone knows the extent of the injury. He's just, he's always hurt. You got to feel for the kid. He's always battling injuries. I don't know if it was his knee or his hamstring. Hopefully it was his hamstring. He went down. It was, he was in the slot, I think, and he was doing a deep out or maybe a, maybe a circus route, something going to the out and, Mike White or Morgan threw it to him, tried to lead him, but as soon as he planted, I don't know if it was no contact or not. He, it was coverage. There was a guy right next to him. I don't know if it was non-contact injury is what I'm trying to get at. But as soon as he planted to head to the sideline, he just fell down and was in agony. So hopefully he's okay. Foley also left. Foley Fatakasi. I didn't see it. Someone told me about it. 
when I was trying to figure out who was there today and who wasn't. So I don't know about Foley Fatakasi's injury either. Michael Carter, I like him as a back. The the man's legs are just tree stumps. They're unreal. Uh, the kid, I think he's going to be good. I think he's going to be really good. Yes, Tevin Coleman, the vet. You're always going to put him atop the depth chart at this point. It's Coleman and Ty Johnson. That's just the way it is. But I do believe Michael Carter will be the number one back come week one. I also do believe Elijah Moore is going to be starting. He's going to be in the top three receivers week one, whether it's by injury or something else. At the very worst, he'll be number four, but he'll play like a number a top three guy in terms of snaps. They'll rotate. There's no way he's sitting on the sideline. I also think he's going to punt return. The only way he doesn't punt return is if Crowder gets cut and they want to play it safe with him injury-wise. But if they're going to pick the best punt returner, it's him. Berrios had a good day, as I called him out earlier. Elijah Campbell, relatively unknown defensive back on the Jets. He had a good day. There was a corner or an out, some kind of outbreak that and this, I think, was the second incompletion of 7-on-7 seven seven for Wilson. I forgot who the target was, but Campbell was all over, all over this target, and he played it perfectly, stayed on the hip, looked back at the right moment, right hand on hip, left sideline, corner or an out, and got the PD. He was thrown in with the first team, and he was looking good. So we'll see what happens, but Elijah Campbell, they're liking. Hassel, the other safety, was getting some first-team reps. Obviously, May's not there. Ashton Davis missed the day, so Hassel and Joyner were getting some first-team reps. You know, you got Mosley, you got Blake Cashman, you got Jared Davis, and the D-line was rotating all day. Offensively, you know pretty much what it is already. You got Carter, you got the stable of backs, Zach Wilson, Croft is certainly going to be involved. There's no question about that. Herndon, obviously, Wesco, obviously. I'm calling Wesco a fullback at this point. He's a big boy, too. I wonder how much muscle or weight he's gained over the last year or two since he got drafted. He looks noticeably bigger than he did when he first got drafted. Offensive line, again, you know the deal. Fant, Mackay. Connor McGovern, AVT, got it. Got the first glimpse at him as well. But it's tough to see what the linemen are doing when you're at practice because you're on the sideline. You can't really tell. You, you can't get the right angle. If you're not up in the box or you're not looking at the film, you can't really get a good idea. I just know this. The O-line played well. The O-line dominated the D-line. The offense dominated the defense. So feel good about that. And then you got McGovern at center, obviously, I mentioned, and then Van Roten at right guard. Does Cam Clark push Van Roten? I don't know. What happens with Alex Lewis? I don't know. Feeney, everyone's new favorite jet. Wearing mullets, chugging beers on Long Island with Zach Wilson and a bunch of other big guys, and I think Mike White was there at the barn, Nassau Coliseum. I don't know... uh, if he could push those guys either, he's probably better served as a seventh, eighth guy in the offensive line. But we'll see. 
some of the quotes today. Sala was asked about possibly bringing in a veteran cornerback. He made it clear that's Joe Douglas's decision. Sherman is the is the big name. I kind of think, you know, it's a sneaky play at this point. It's under the radar. I think it could happen. You know, whatever you pay Sherman, you're going to overpay. There's no question about that in terms of money. But his veteran leadership, his understanding of the system is invaluable if you bring him on this team on a one-year deal. And you're going to overpay him, but hey, it's a, if it's a one-year deal, the only thing that hurts is the carryover. You can't take advantage as much. But, you know, playing the outside, attacking the ball at the high point in this defense, I think you jump at the chance if it's possible. Salah, I think his quote was something to the effect of, you know, it'll take away, a veteran cornerback will take away reps from the rookies, from the young guys. Yeah, I think he's just playing it in the middle. He doesn't know what's going to happen, what's close to happening. I mean, he does know what's close to happening if there's mutual interest there. But maybe Sherman's holding his hopes out for something else. Maybe he's just waiting. We'll see. That was something to keep an eye on. I think it's much to do about nothing. Because I think Salah would take Sherman in a heartbeat if he decided to pull the trigger on the Jets. Something else, Zach Wilson asked afterwards, uh, you know, after his good day, one of his funny quotes was he's still getting used to Jersey drivers. And yeah, I feel you. I mean, listen, I was born in Jersey, grew up in Northeast PA for the most part, but always been around North Jersey. You know, I'm used to it. But even people who are used to it have to get used to it again. Like it's, they're crazy. They're nuts. You know, and the the craziest part about Jersey drivers, North Jersey drivers is they're nuts. You'll look at the car and you want to see who's driving the car and you have a mental image of who that might be. And it could be anybody. It'll shock the hell out of you. You could either get the mental image right or it could be 180 degrees opposite, which is a big time sign that you don't want to mess with Jersey drivers. You just pick your spots. If you get cut off, if you get screwed, you know, flash a sign and go about your day. You know, don't don't turn a battle into a war because when it's a war, your your life becomes miserable. And that's what Jersey drivers will make it. Hey, I'm one myself. So Throw me into the mix, I guess, but I feel your pain, Zach Wilson. Robert Sala, he officially got his New York City baptism. At the Garden, Wednesday night, put on the big screen, and the crowd goes nuts. Yes, the crowd was going nuts all night, but there's Sala right there, hooting it up. And there's there's a lot of different ways to get baptized first pitch at yankee stadium bronx you can take the bronx route first pitch at city field you could take the queens route but there's nothing better than the garden attending a knicks or rangers game getting on that big screen that's the official baptism that's it i know they're called the new york jets new york giants but it's a jersey team and that Manhattan welcome, that 
five borough welcome is big time. And it happens for a lot of newcomers to the area. Brett Favre, I mean, Brett Favre was unveiled at City Hall in 2008. So, you know, I just feel for Brooklyn a little bit. You know, the Nets, Brooklyn fans, they, they, they're always left out in the cold. Islander fans, too. I mean, you got to give Islanders fans credit because the barn's been rocking, but no one's going to Long Island or Brooklyn to get baptized. It just doesn't happen. I'm sorry. You know, I, I can't see Salah going to uh, Barclays in this scenario. That just doesn't happen. So this was his official New York baptism, and he spoke about it today prior to OTAs. And he he loved the experience. Robert, it, uh, it looked like you had some fun at the garden last night. Um, yeah. Just, you know, what was that atmosphere like? And as a coach of an, another team in this market, you start dreaming about like, you know, what, what if, what if we have this atmosphere at some point? Uh, it, it was awesome. Uh, obviously the garden kind of it, it lived up to its reputation. You know, you from an outsider looking in, all you hear about is the garden and it was awesome. Um, but yeah, you know, that we've, we've talked about it before that uh, New York fans are extremely passionate. They love their home teams. They're, um, they're, they're rabid to a sense and it's awesome. It comes from just a, just absolute love for their teams. And, but like everything else in the world, you got to earn it. You got to earn that, uh, that the response that they gave the Knicks and the Knicks have done a phenomenal job, uh, uh, rebuilding that organization. And and what you heard at the garden yesterday was phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, so we're excited about all the work we're putting in. We're excited to get the opportunity to earn, earn the same response at at MetLife stadium and let the fans light that place up. And how about that? What Tom Thibodeau did for the Knicks is exactly what Knicks and Jets fans, the, the crossover is hoping Salah does for the Jets. Coaching makes a huge difference. More so in the NFL than the NBA, for sure. You know, the NBA probably makes the least amount of difference thanks to the superstar nature of the league, but nevertheless, makes a difference. And... How about those Knicks? How about the Garden? I'll tell you what. Sports without fans is a disaster. I want nothing to do with sports without fans. It means nothing. An empty building with with just quiet does nothing worse. So what we've experienced over the last year has just been downright brutal. It's no life to live. And the Garden re-energized the Knicks falling down early. I mean, I'll tell you, Nerland's Noel is so important to that team. But Gibson, Todd Gibson, came up huge. He was huge in that game. Rose. I don't think the Knicks played all that great, to be honest. The Hawks just stopped missing shots, or started missing shots in the third quarter, and the Knicks started making shots. Julius Randle came alive a little bit. Trey Young. They were forcing Young left. They, they were playing better pick-and-roll defense against Young. So they played better than game one, the Knicks, but it, by no means did they play fantastic. No shot. The key here are the fans and the Garden. No matter what happens with the Knicks here, 
the fact that the city is alive again and the garden's alive again is just an incredible thing. There was a point when Trey Young was, and this is when the unfortunate situation where he got spit on. And I think there was an announcement that Madison Square Garden identified the guy and banned him for life, which they should have. Um, they, the crowd, though, on that side out of bounds was heckling the hell out of Trey Young. And it was just, it was incredible. And once the game ended, it was incredible. The alley-oop to Obi Toppin got extremely loud. Well, let's take a listen to the Trey Young harassment at the end of the game and the final seconds. Here in New York, playing for the coach that he loves, and he is giving the Knicks everything he has here in the first two games of this series. The Knicks don't want to give up the three and no foul. So Young will inbound. Hawks only 34 points in the second half. Alley up to Hunter. Misses the layup. Randall the rebound. That play indicative of the Hawks' last three minutes. The series is tied at one game apiece. Knicks get their first playoff victory in eight years. And the Hawks will head home. And they are a formidable team at home, Mike. 19 and 2 down the stretch under the auspices of Macmillan. So a formidable task await the Knicks as they head to ATL. Yeah, tough task. We'll see. Hawks, excellent record at home. But the fact that the Knicks finally won a game means the world. The fans afterwards were just giddy. And it's what you want to see. It's what the NBA needs. It's what the city needs right now. It's what the sports world needs right now. And it's just perfect. So Friday night, game three, we'll see what happens. Islanders off to the second round. Nets keep dominating. What can you say? It would be the best thing in the world if the Knicks actually beat the Hawks, advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals after a second round stunner, and met the Nets. I mean, can you can you imagine that series back and forth? Shades of Rangers Devils '94, but we'll see. Nets, I think, will be there. Nets are going to the finals. I mean, unless a huge injury happens, Nets are in the finals. This is the NBA. You don't pick underdogs. The favorites get there. Upsets rarely happen, which makes this Knicks team so special. So day one of media availability at OTAs in the books. A lot of Jets players there, over 80. It looked like which is a great sign for the new coaching staff. And again, the coaching staff, very optimistic, very rah-rah, enthusiastic. Leon Washington was out there. And Zach Wilson was tremendous. Yes, it's OTAs. But Darnold, the previous guy, was rarely tremendous in these same situations. So if you're a Jets fan, you feel good. You should. Things are really looking good. If you're a Knicks fan, hope for the best. If you're a Nets fan, well, I hope you're a Nets fan that's been a Nets fan for more than two years. I hope you were a diehard Jersey Nets fan during the Jason Kidd days, during the Drazen Petrovic days. 
I hope. Because if not, let's not name call, but don't do that bandwagon stuff. It's just, it's for the birds. Isles, congrats to you guys as well. But we'll see what happens. Isles, Nets, Knicks, Jets, and in the midst of the Yankees are still chugging along. I mean, baseball's becoming nearly unwatchable. It, it seems like they took some of the juice out of the baseballs, but the damage has been done. The The launch angles of the swings, the no-hitters, no one could hit anymore. It, it's just awful. It's, it's nearly unwatchable. I mean, I'll watch it in October for sure. I'll watch a lot of games this year. You know, it'll be in the background on my TV often, but it's compared to the yesteryear, compared to baseball days of the past, it's nearly unwatchable. Check out the latest Underdog Jets podcast episode of The Winker Bet. We went over the, we rewatched the Monday Night Miracle and remembered certain plays, certain situations where uh, Wayne was watching and actually got emotional a little bit about the some of the plays, especially the touchdown that tied it up, which I forgot. There was still four minutes, around four minutes left. So they scored 23 points in the entire, not the entire, in 11 minutes in the, of the fourth quarter. So four minutes left. They called, they ran so many plays, ran so many routes. The one play he, the one ball he caught on the out from Vinny on third down and set up the field goal when he was just laying there dead tired. He confirmed it on the podcast. He was just tired. He was dead. Dead. And if he wasn't that tired, he might have scored. Uh, we saw the trainers massaging his calves right after that. So check out that episode, iTunes. The video is on Vimeo right now. You could find it on my Twitter profile or his Twitter profile. It'll be on Jets X Factor by Friday. The Vimeo video. It, it can't go on YouTube because of the footage we used. But it was a good episode, so check that episode out, episode three, Monday Night Miracle of the Underdog Jets podcast. Keep listening to Cool Your Jets. Keep watching Blue It's Blitz on YouTube. Uh, last one he did was AVT. I forget which one's next, but is another good one coming up next. And download the apps. Download the apps at Android and Apple, and keep reading the stuff at JetsX Factor. Till next time. But first, my interview with Tyler Greenewalt. Our next guest is someone whose work you've definitely read a time or two, more than a time or two, I'm sure. Tyler Greenewalt, writer at the Jetswire, part of the USA Today Network. And he's going to be talking a little Jets with us, obviously. Tyler, how's everything going? Everything's going great, Robbie. Thanks for having me on. Uh, oh, loving no the stuff problem. you guys are doing over there, Jets X Factor. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. No problem. Hey, we'll have you on anytime. Um, so let's let's dig into the off season. Uh, Want to hear your thoughts, especially on every major move. Obviously, we'll talk draft, but let's start from the beginning. The new coaching staff, Salah. How do you feel about how everything went down there? Obviously, when he left the building the first time, a lot of people were upset, enraged. I'm sure you saw Twitter. I kind of took a patient approach and, you know, I just put my faith in Douglas, which I, I know as a Jets fan, it's tough to do sometimes. 
uh, not Douglas per se, but the organization. How do you feel about Salah as a coach incoming with the floor and Ulbrich and just that direction as a whole? I think out of every possible option from a head coaching perspective, I think they hit the nail right on the head, like bullseye across the board. Sure, getting an offensive-minded guy like Biennemi would have been great or um, any of the other guys in college that I know they were probably looking up. But I think Salah offers something that a lot of people, especially the Jets, were looking for. They want a guy who can energize an organization, energize a group of people, and build the team out, not necessarily focused on defense, not necessarily focused on offense, but bring the right group of people together. And I think, I mean, I, for one, was surprised that he would he would want to come to New York after seeing what happened with uh, with Adam Gase. Um, but fortunately, the, the bar was set pretty low, so expectations uh, are always higher in New York than most places, but lowered definitely a little bit more because of Gase. Yeah, it, it's funny, though, too. Salo wasn't high up on the list. I mean... It, Everyone had a positive view on him, but there were other names that were up there on the list. And then all of a sudden, suddenly he he emerged. And then once he emerged and fans and media members saw him, and they kind of went, oh, yeah, there he Salah. We kind of forgot about him, but he's the right guy. I mean, he makes sense in a lot of ways. What I like about him the most is he's engaging. He wants it to be a family. And... It's okay if your head coach calls plays, but I love the fact that he doesn't have the ego where he feels he has to, you know? So I kind of love that. And it should be interesting in terms of the hierarchy as well. You know, as you know, since Woody Johnson took over, the GM and head coach have been on kind of on the same playing field and they both report to the owner. Christopher came out specifically to say publicly once the season ended no more joe douglas is in charge and everything goes through him and sala is in charge of the coaching staff now two years ago matt rule kind of let it slip out that greg williams was being forced onto the next jets head coach do we know that's for certainty no but it's possible it's likely how do you feel about the hierarchy do you think that's a huge positive or do you think it's much to do about nothing I think for the hierarchy, in my opinion, that is the the correct sort of way that you should run an organization. Obviously, not every organization is run that way. There's instances like I think the Chiefs and possibly another organization, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they have it the same way the Jets used to do. But I think for the Jets, they needed to make a statement that Joe Douglas is running the show. It's Joe Douglas's team. And finding someone who, again, like you mentioned, doesn't have an ego that has to be on the same tier as the GM helps a lot. So I think this just makes the line of communication a little bit easier coming from the top down, who makes the decisions on personnel. Obviously, Douglas won't <laughs> be calling plays or or setting lineups or anything like that. So it kind of allows Sala as well to kind of focus on the parts of his job that matter the most. And I know from Douglas's time in Philadelphia, he saw that delineation between Doug Peterson and Howie Roseman. Granted, that didn't end up working out well in the end, but Doug Peterson was a coach first and he had been on record saying he didn't like diving into the personnel decisions. Whether or not that was true (laughs) remains to be seen, obviously, based off all the reports that eventually came out. But Douglas at least saw that. And I think that probably played a part in how this was able to be broken up in that way. And Saul seems to be okay with it again doesn't seem to have an ego so I, I think it'll help things along the way and how about philly too it's kind of 
if you're a Jets fan, kind of reassuring, even though you don't know for sure. Philly's success kind of coincides with Douglas's arrival and mm. its failures coincide with Douglas's departure. So if you're a Jets fan, kind of hold, hold on to that. Cause I think that's something to hold on to, even though you don't know for certain it's, it's a big deal. Um, and by the way, it is Salah. You are pronouncing it correctly. I asked today and they told me it's Salah, the organization. I hear people, a lot of people keep saying Salah. And that's one thing where, you know, I, I didn't know for certain, but folks out there, it's Salah and Tyler's got it right. I think uh, the confusion might be there's a player on Liverpool in the EPL named Mohamed Salah. Oh, and really? the spelling is very similar. Mm. Um, so I think some people might have been hearing Salah out in the sports ether and kind of attributed it to, uh, to Robert, but uh, not the case. I think that and it's it's more fun to go Salah. <laughs> Salah. I think, you know, yes, yeah, exactly. So the other big thing, obviously, this offseason, Sam Darnold versus the rookie quarterback. To be honest, I was surprised how many people were on the Sam Darnold train. I knew there would be some. Uh, a lot of it comes from Gase. Gase was not good. I, tr- I was trying to come up with a word there, but I couldn't come up with a word other than not good. And that paints it pretty well. So because of Gase, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of misconceptions out there. I think that Darnold's better than he is and certain other things. I would say one out of every four Jets fans were on the side of keep Darnold and trade the number two pick because you can get a haul. And there's a, there was a great argument for that, a legit argument. The tricky part is the contractual situation going into year four, not picking up year five with the bonus, uh, the fifth-year option, excuse me. So I was on the Zach Wilson bandwagon from the beginning. We'll see how it plays out. Tyler Greenewald, where were you on that situation? So, I mean, I agree with you. There were a lot of reasons to keep Darnold and try it out, but I think – when you balance the pros and cons of it, the pros of moving on from Darnold and drafting a quarterback this year, as opposed to maybe seeing what Darnold's like. And if it doesn't work out, then you're, you're looking at the same situation all over again, just with a worse quarterback class. I think this, it was the only move that made sense for this year. Joe Douglas needed a, a quarterback that he could sort of tie his career to. And I don't think Darnold was the, the, the right choice for him. Salah and that coaching staff gets a new guy as well. Could the draft hall have been enormous for a guy like Zach Wilson? Sure. But we've seen in the past that at the end of the day, the quarterback, the player matters more than the hall you could get. Like the Browns have traded out of their picks so many times and didn't have too much to show show for it until they got Baker. So yeah, at the end of the day, I think Darnold has opportunities now. I don't think he would have had the same opportunities in New York. And I think Wilson was the better move. Now, to be honest, I was more pro Justin Fields as the pick, to be honest, than, okay. than Wilson, just because I am, from a college football perspective, I like guys that have performed well consistently over multiple years as opposed to just one, because I get flashbacks to like Trubisky or Sanchez. And granted, there are outliers like Justin Herbert from last year. So, And I do think Zach Wilson is a great pick. I think he and Justin Fields were pretty much on the same level so i'm happy with wilson and i think that was a better move than keeping darnold in the end yeah it's i mean if you look at 
the, the one thing we know with Douglas is he's a salary cap whiz. Even though he's a scout at heart, he also really understands the salary cap. He understands value. And, you know, if you look at the best teams over the last 10 years, two decades, it, mainly 10 years because the new CBA happened in 2011, uh, it's, it's been built on rookie contracts because it's, it's, it's pretty much a cheat code. You know, you don't have to pay the guy. What really hurts GMs these days is paying the wrong quarterback mega dollars on a second contract. So I think it was the right move as well. Uh, NFL draft. Any off the top of your head's thoughts on the NFL draft? Anything you were surprised about? Did you like the ABT move? Um, go ahead. Fire away. Yeah, I, I think it was a very surprising draft in a in the best way possible. I went into that draft expecting, obviously, they're going Zach Wilson one or first round. Depending on how the board shaked out, I didn't think Douglas was going to trade up, but I thought they were going to go offensive line or cornerback. I thought they were going to kind of go back and forth between weaknesses and, and, and building the offense. I didn't think they'd go four offensive linemen or four offensive players in a row. I certainly didn't think they would trade up for AVT. I, I know people in the analytics world hate that move because you're giving up two-thirds and uh, the 23rd pick just to move up nine spots for a guard, but that you've got, you've got to make that move. Like if he's the, the best zone blocking guard in the draft, you got to make that move and the rest will fall into place. Like Elijah Moore pick. I think that was a phenomenal choice um, because Jameson Crowder is not going to be on the team forever. And if they decide to keep him or cut him, it doesn't matter because you have more now either for this year as Crowder's replacement or next year, definitely as Crowder's replacement. And Michael Carter fits in the scheme really well. Um, the, the the back half of the draft, though, like rounds five and six, I was only confused at first just because I thought at that point they're like, okay, they're never they're not going offensive line or not going offense at all again, which I thought they needed at least one more offensive lineman. And there were a lot of cornerbacks that they just decided not to go with. But continuing to look at it and diving into a little bit more, especially like the stats that uh, your boy Michael uh, was able to pull, mm -hmm. I think they made – really good moves that fit the defense well. They got athletes, they got versatile players, they got basically moldable assets that they can kind of create very specific types of players around. They're not being expected to start week one or week two. Um, so yeah, I, I think the draft as a whole was a success. People will criticize the ABT trade I don't think that that was a bad move. You have to do everything that you can to make sure, make sure Zach Wilson is secured both from a protection standpoint and just with weapons around him. And they did everything they could in free agency in the draft to do that. Yeah, the problem with the analytics people is they don't take into account the actual player. I mean, they just look mm -hmm. at, okay, number 14, yeah. number 14 pick, position guard. What if this 14th pick is an actual top five pick? Like that's what you, they don't take into account and there's no way to formulate that. So, you know, as anything in life, it can't just be analytics. It has to be analytics and experiential, you know, experience has to go a long way in the formula. So that, that's, that's a really real gripe I have with analytics. Um, <laughs> even it's a great tool. Don't get me wrong, but it's a, it's a major gripe I have. You can never come to a conclusion based on analytics alone. I was surprised yeah. by that though, to be honest, I did not envision him trading up being that aggressive, but he did. And, you know, uh, I'm pleased with the result because I think AVT's as close to a camp misses there is, you know, mm -hmm. in any draft. 
Um, Elijah Moore, interestingly, you know, even though they look good with Mims, Crowder, Corey Davis, it wasn't a complete unit, I felt like, because they needed that guy who could threaten the edge, you know, take jet motion mm-hmm. duties. Braxton Berrios did it basically last year, but he's he's just not a game breaker. So I love that pick too. But yeah, you're, yeah, you're spot they, on. They, they needed their Debo Samuel yeah. in this offense. And Crowder's not, not that, just purely based off of his skill set. Um, right. And, and going back to AVT quickly, I think this is kind of proving the... Uh, the scout side of of Joe Douglas, like he didn't look at the cat, like how much it would cost. He just had to get him, and that's yes. very unlike Douglas. So if he's going to make that type of move, it's going to be for a player that he and a lot of other people he trusts, like. And that was ABT. I think he just wanted to uh, do that fist pump in the in the war room <laughs> afterwards. He just wanted to get hyped. He just wanted to do something to go yeah. crazy. Um. Yeah. Free agency. You were, I'm sure you were hearing what the fan base had to say. They were frustrated early on, really frustrated. They thought the Jets weren't spending money. I think they finished either fifth or seventh in terms of guaranteed money. So they spent money. They definitely spent money. Uh, But they didn't get Tooney, who everyone wanted. By all accounts, he targeted him. He just went to KC, did not target Lindsley, which was interesting. I think they, I think he wanted the guard in the draft because if you get a stud guard in the draft, you don't have to pay him a lot. And that's really cost effective. Uh, so, and then McGovern, keeping him at center. But Lawson, I mean, how can you quibble with Lawson? Every year there are edges available, and every year it seems like they don't become available because they're tagged. With Douglas, he's finally gotten an edge. Uh, maybe the first one, a legitimate one since John Abraham. He's also drafted two offensive linemen in two years, which is as many as they've had in, oh, God, I don't even know how long, at least since 2006 with Mangold and yeah. Ferguson. Uh, that's, probably free agency. that's probably it. And then before that, I don't know when their last first-round offensive lineman was. I can't even – probably maybe the late 80s. I, I can't even remember. Fabini, <laughs> I don't think Fabini was a first-round pick. Uh, yeah, that's what I was what thinking. You, or, yeah, what do you know. think about free agency? Did you think uh, Douglas did the right thing here? Yeah, I think Douglas could have got a couple of different ways based off of the available players. I think he was looking at it from the perspective of like, okay, how much money do I conceivably want to spend on X position, whether that's offensive line, wide receiver, defensive, and whatever the case may be. And then alternatively, could I find that in the draft based off of our picks? And he probably looked at Tooney and he saw the money that people were throwing at him. It's like, I can get that in the draft. If I like, there's going to be guards in the first round that I can either trade up for or wait for at 23. So I'm not going to overpay for a guy that I can get the draft, but he's not going to be able to get a good wide receiver because he picks too early or too late in the first granted he still could have probably potentially gotten like Bateman late, but regardless. Um, and the same goes for, for pass rusher, like all the pass rushers are either going like mid first round or later in like the like late second round. So like the, the timing really didn't add up for the players that he could draft based off of who was available. So he went and like, okay, I'm never, I'm not going to get a Carl Lawson most likely. So I'll go and get him. That'll satisfy a need that you definitely need. And the Robert Sala, Jeff Albright, 
defense. I need some receivers. These are good, solid guys that can fit this offense well that aren't going to cost a ton of money. Like he's not going out and paying Kenny Galladay money. Kenny Galladay, great player, but the Jets have way more needs than wide receiver. And so I think getting pass rusher, wide receiver, super important. Um, and even some of the other like smaller moves, like getting veterans like Tevin Coleman or Vinnie Curry or LaMarcus Joyner, like those aren't positions that the Jets needed to fill, but you bring in guys that can play and play at a high level that don't cost a lot of money. Right. Um, I, I was very surprised by the Sheldon Rankins uh, acquisition, to be honest, mostly because that was not a position that I thought the Jets needed to pay that much money for but the contract isn't bad and rankins is a conceivably a really good player based off of where he was drafted and he wanted to come to new york so i i think they built a juggernaut up front which is the key to this defense so i think free agency sure they could have gone out and got a quarter cornerback but um otherwise i think it was a slam dunk too yeah if you're if you're going to leave two spots two positions bare it's linebacker and corner and i because if you're pass rush is seven and eight deep and nasty it could really cover up those positions and if you look in san Fra- look at san fran under sala mm-hmm. that's kind of what they did mm-hmm. so you know having the versatility having the depth it's it's a pretty good job all the way around i think yeah um, and, yeah go ahead well no all, all i was gonna say is with regards to jets fans being frustrated in the beginning that i feel like that happens every single year Right. When when they don't go out and get the big guy, they don't get Juju, they don't get Tooney, they don't get Lindsley, and all those guys go. Well, I mean, Juju waited, but all a little bit of patience. They got Carl Lawson, and so, I, as soon as they got Carl Lawson, I think everyone kind of breathed a sigh of relief. True. I was like, okay, we hit a big position of need, and now the rest should fall into place. So that was the domino. The way I look at it is the teams that are usually happy during the off season are the teams that disappoint during the regular season. <laughs> you know, they were happy two years ago, Le'Veon Bell mostly. I mean, look what happens. Free yeah. agency's got to be viewed as like the cherry on top of the cake. You, you know, the foundation is everything before free agency and you can't rush it. Um, he is Tyler Greenewalt for Jetswire USA Today. Uh, Tyler, where could the folks find you on Twitter? Uh, they can follow me at Ty Green fourteen. Yeah, it's pretty simple that one. That's <laughs> I've seen. I've heard. I've seen disaster, disaster Twitter handles. I mean, smart man going pretty pretty <laughs> simple. Um, any final thoughts before uh, uh, you know we head into I think a dead period until camp starts, right? Yeah, it's going to be pretty quiet for a little while. So um, I'm interested to see. I think the the two big things that are interesting to me is continuing to see. Zach Wilson kind of uh, grow as a leader. It seems like he's doing a really good job saying all the right things on and off the field, which is great. And then figuring out what they're going to do at cornerback. It sounds like based off of comments from, from earlier that Salah is just excited to use their young players and not going to go get a, a veteran, which could be a mistake. But those are the two things I'm interested to see before we head into camp. Would you want Sherman? Uh, yeah, I think... I don't think he would want to come to New York unless they overpaid and Douglas isn't going to overpay. But I think the, the idea that a veteran would take away reps from young players while correct, the, the average age of these cornerbacks is like 23 or 24. You need to have a guy with some veteran experience 
to come in there and at least be a presence and someone that can fill in as a starter to start. Yeah, um, I um, I agree with you. I think whatever you pay Sherman, you're going to overpay because I think yeah. he's yeah at this point he's more name. But what he provides in the locker room, in the in the cornerback room, is invaluable. He knows Salah's system and that that wisdom, that leadership is is invaluable. I think it's still possible. I think it's a sneaky thing that everyone's letting their guard down for some reason. Um, and Salah saying that was today, right? Yeah, yeah. it was the press conference today that it would take reps away from young guys. I don't know. That that's interesting. I would that would that quote bite them if they did sign Sherman? Probably not, based on what they're building with the culture. But that's an interesting quote. I'm gonna have to think about more later. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, Salah said that he's comfortable. Like he's not going to tell Joe Douglas how to do his job. So Joe Douglas looks at the roster and he's like, you know what? We got to bring this guy in. I think, I think it'll be fine in the end. I, yeah. I just don't, other than Sherman, the only other guy would be available is Brian Poole. Um, so, well, we'll, we'll see that. That's the interesting part of the team. That's the one missing, missing part that I think it needs, needs some work. Yeah, it definitely does. All right, Tyler. Thanks for, thanks for helping on today. We'll, uh, we'll have you again back soon. And uh, folks, check his workout. Uh, hop on Twitter, find his profile, and check his workout at Jetswire, which is part of the USA Today uh, family of websites. 